Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Manchester is Red podcast here by the Manchester Evening News. I am your host today, Ash Barmy, and I am pleased to be joined by Tyrone Marshall. Hello. And Samuel Luckhurst. Hello. Samuel, there's only one place we can start and that is the weekend game down on the south coast of Bournemouth. We feel like, we feel like we've been here before with United where we feel like they've possibly turned the corner, but there's nothing like a Wendy away day in the Premier League to bring you right back down to earth, is it? No, uh, the the use of resurgence, revival in in recent piece up until then, I think I always try to prefix with with mini because even though they did win those those three games, only one of them was in the league. Uh, when was the last time they won two two league games on the spin? Was it? It must have been. It must have been February. February March mm, must have been, been February. Uh, that's just endemic of where this United side is is at. I thought the weekend the two best players were the two wingers, but. They, they just stayed out on the wing uh, at Norwich United were fluid they were interchanging they pulled dragged Norwich all over the place they, they really flummoxed them with their movement at Bournemouth it was, it was just regression the fixed positions Pereira dreadful um, never going to make a playmaker never was never going to make a Manchester United first teamer but that's his status Marshall uh, I thought was, was pretty poor didn't get into the game and I think the <laughs> It said it all that the the winning goal it really came from Bournemouth doing what United should have done that the players were moving all over the place I think Wilson and, and Fraser dovetailed quite well it was a very neat finish by King it was a dreadful goal from United's perspective to concede and also just with this United side you, you never have any um, any remote confidence in them that they are going to you know salvage a game from a losing position I know they did that once or twice under Solskjaer when, when he was the caretaker but they had 45 minutes to or, or 50 minutes to to score at least one goal to, to equalise and they never really looked like doing it I think one of the reports in the press room afterwards is it must have been a Bournemouth uh, reporter, a local reporter because he was saying to Eddie Howe about how good the goalkeeper was I'm thinking the goalkeeper made saves that a goalkeeper should make there was just no incision about them. As I said, it was just it was just a day of regression. But it's not a surprise with United. I think from the only real takeaway I'd have from, uh, I guess, a neutral perspective is that I think if you're Manchester City, you you really should be going for Nathan Ake in January. Yeah. What makes you say that? I, I thought he was man of the match. I thought mm. he was just. I thought he was exceptional. I think he's obviously he's he's got quite a high ceiling, and I know City th- there was some interest there in the summer. He, he he's a fifty million pound defender because of contract, age, you know, the homegrown status, the lot. But I think he'd certainly be an upgrade on most of City centre halves at the moment. They're available ones anyway. Yeah, Ty. I mean, when you, when you look at United, I mean, it does look like the same issues are just resurfacing for United. I mean, you have them good results and kind of overlook it. You think right back on top now, but in terms of goals and creativity do you sometimes think with United that it might not even be the creativity issue it's just maybe a moment of genius from a player to just maybe turn and score score a screen from 25 yards do you think that is part of the issue as well or is it just someone who can maybe put a chance on a plate for Marshall or Rashford uh, well perhaps it's a little bit the first as well but those sort of players can usually do both of those things if you want a player or a playmaker to come up with a moment of genius and, and you know, stick one in the top corner from 25 yards where nothing's on, then that player is usually the same player that is playing as your playmaker and is creating chances. The The problem is, I mean, we're like a broken record, but United are just a plan A team and there is nothing really beyond that. Um, there, there was a sense against Norwich and Chelsea that the attack had found some fluidity against Norwich, Marshall's return certainly 
helped. But like Samuel said, again, it was it was back to just that sort of rigid plan A on, on Saturday. And it's it's too obvious that for, it's too easy to defend against for far too many teams. Norwich, I think, were always going to be a good fixture for United because they play very open and it'll probably cost them and end up in the relegation. But they, they play very open. And if they let you if, you, if you can find the space behind them, then United are always going to thrive there. Uh, Chelsea, they were, you know, they were very good. And I think that's what gave you the sense that this had been a corner turned for United. But it was just back to those same issues. And goal scoring remained just such a problem. And, and not just goal scoring, creating chances and finding another way to create chances beyond just playing on the counter-attack and, and using that pace. Yeah, Samuel, I mean, it is five games now in 14 days. Is it a case of maybe the fixtures taking its toll on the players or is it above that? Is it just the issue of that some of these players just clearly aren't good enough to be where, yeah, to do what United that, want that. to do? It really is that. I mean, some of us who have been travelling around watching United, yeah, we, we do feel tired doing it if you're going to Norwich or London or uh, Bournemouth or wherever, but you know, United fly everywhere. It's pretty much, it's it's not that much of a hardship. They've just not got the good enough players. Um I mean, Solskjaer's in-game management in recent weeks and his tactical acumen seemed... Well, it, it definitely did for a brief period returned. But back at the week at the weekend, the first substitution he makes is, OK, he takes Pereira off, right, so absolutely abysmal. But he puts Lingard on, who is not a playmaker, hasn't scored a league goal or created a league goal since December. He'd be a bit more innovative. He probably should have brought Greenwood on then rather than Lingard I thought that was the obvious change to make um, you know try try and change the shape of the team a bit but didn't the shape of the team was still the same Bournemouth I thought were really quite comfortable apart from that opening uh, 10 or 15 minutes when they kept on playing it behind and James was uh, James had the left back on toast Bournemouth were comfortable and you looked at Bournemouth's team and half of them must have been six footers and they were just they they, the way they had the shape was really clever in that they just made sure United kept the ball on the flank, which they had a lot of time um, and had a lot of the ball out there. And because United are hopeless at crossing and don't score enough goals from uh, wide play anyway, they were pretty confident with that. But also, you, you're just a tall team anyway, and you're going to be able to nullify that threat that threat quite easily. So, it, and, and I think the thing that I found really striking was that I mean, wan has had a respectable start and that he's not embarrassed himself. I think King's got the weekend was probably the first time a defender's properly got... Sorry, not a defender, a forward's properly got the better of him. But full-backs are judged on what they do in attack these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and wan There was one point in the second half where United had an attack. Ashley Young was in line with Bournemouth's 18-yard area. wan all the way back near the halfway line. So United, who have bragged about their scouting department and their recruitment process and how we scouted 804 right-backs, they've not only homed in on the most obvious option, but they seem to have homed in on the most expensive option, who also doesn't want to attack. And that is always going to... It's not only going to lopside your attack, it's going to have an adverse effect on it because you've not got the option there. It shouldn't be James providing the natural width all the time. It's got to be Wan-Bissaka. He's, he's very shy and, and a very quiet lad to the point that he didn't even want to ask, answer certain questions on pre-season tour. And they weren't, they weren't offensive questions. They were what you'd call underarm questions. 
And unfortunately, he's a little bit too much like that on the pitch. And they sensed that in Perth. Pogba sensed it. He was telling him, bomb up and down, get forward. Solskjaer was telling him, get forward more. He's still, he's still not been deprogrammed from the fullback at Palace, who was told, just defend. And you don't see him get beaten that that much in defensive capacity. It, it's a strange thing, isn't it, with Bombsat? Because wasn't I've had that? Wasn't he have played further forward? When he was he a winger. He was a winger. Solid was seventeen, eighteen. So, yeah, you so, don't you don't see that at all yeah. on the pitch. Maybe have, that's why they. Yeah. Why they he doesn't have any back. tendencies of a winger. There was an incident as well on Saturday. I think United had a three v two on that side, and the ball got played to Wambasaka. And he just kind of held the ball, didn't make any movement towards his man, didn't threaten to try and overtake his man and just played a simple ball back in field, which is easy to defend against. So He's a very traditional fullback, isn't he? Yeah. In the sense that he, it's defending that, first. And, he's actually, and, yeah. and that, that doesn't cut it these days. No. I think the, the most alarming thing about him was that he's looked like Valencia at times recently in that he'll get the ball, he'll hesitate, he'll play it backwards. I think on the Scout report... It gives you the average positioning of where a player's been throughout the game. And Young was well beyond the halfway line. He was actually further ahead than the two midfielders, which is where a fullback should be. Wambisaka was well inside his own half and only marginally ahead of Maguire, which just sometimes you don't need stats to back up what you've you've just seen, but that just confirmed um, your reservations about his style and his approach. Yeah, it's, Ty, we were, we were talking about Fred and Scott McTominay being almost like a solution a week mm. ago. And now you look at it and you think, well, it's almost like no, we've gone back to square one again. Do you still think that they have, they're have they doing enough to maybe stake that claim as well? Or is it just a case of wait till Pogba's back and maybe address the situation? Maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think Pogba walks back into one of those two positions when he's fit, undoubtedly. I mean, they're making it their own at the moment because what's the alternative? The Manumatic. So... They're making those spots their own. Uh, Fred is making that spot his own, let's be honest. McTominay's, you would say, is pretty solid in, in that position on performances this season and, and last season. But they're doing it, and Fred's doing it in the ways of no competition, and they did have a good spell, but this, there's, there's a maddening inconsistency with United this season and an inability to build on any momentum that they get. You know, Fred and McTominay had started a few games together. They had looked a really promising partnership. And then it's just complete regression at Bournemouth and back to, you know, the worst sides of their game and particularly Fred, the worst sides of, of his game. So I, I certainly don't think they're the long-term Manchester United midfield at the moment. And I think when Pogba's fit, he would... I mean, you'd have... You'd probably have an 80% Paul Pogba in there at the moment and, and have an improvement. You still need to see more from Fred and more, more consistency. You need to be... He's had a good run of games here, but you need to be seeing him doing these sort of you know the higher level of performances week in week out before I think we can consider him a solid first team regular yeah I mean Bournemouth aside Samuel do you think we're starting to see a bit more about Fred now are you, do you think you're starting to understand more about what he brings to the team and he, is he maybe developing to the level that United <laughs> it, thought they were going to get when he, had, he had a decent run with the Norwich game and, mm. and the Chelsea game I thought he was very good at Norwich I thought he was pretty good against Chelsea but it, it just doesn't cut it. it. It doesn't help that a lot of players are certain starts at the moment just by virtue that there's no competition. Literally none. United at the moment have two senior central midfielders available to them. That's Fred and McTominay because Solskjaer, for some misguided reason, decide, has decided that Pereira is a playmaker. 
and he's not a playmaker. The alternative to though to Pereira is James Garner, who's 18, who could be a very very good player um, in in a few years to come, but is not at that level yet that you would throw him into a Premier League game. I don't think. And that's not fair on him either. But again, it's that's a failure of the recruitment process, of um, the way they go about yeah, contract renewals, like with Herrera, they deemed him inessential. I don't think he was worth the 200 grand a week. They were apparently offering him in the end. I don't think that they should have been pushing the boat out of that kind of player. But okay, you know in early April he's going. So make sure you get a midfielder in. Make sure it's not um, Sean Longstaff because as talented a player as he could be, that, that doesn't cut it. You need someone a bit more um, a bit more proven to come in. I think here and there you can get away with um, operating like that. Daniel James has come in and he was the most junior of the three signings and he's been a, a very good buy up until now. But if you're going to occupy every position with those kind of players, it's, it's just not going to work. But I don't think they've actually massively missed Pogba. You go back two years when I think they had the draw at Liverpool. Um, there was that Huddersfield horror show where Lindelof was woeful and then they lost at Chelsea a couple of weeks later. They, they you could clear, Mourinho said at the time, you can clearly see the difference as of us as a team with Pogba and without Pogba. I don't really come away from games thinking when United have lost or drawn thinking cracky Pogba would have made a difference there it's not like he's Roy Keane in 1998 or Vidic in the second half of 11-12 but despite despite his own form obviously whatever the team whatever the formation he he walks back in because he's the he's the most talented player on his day Do you think United will be active? I know January transfer window isn't the time where clubs don't want to get anyone in and then it's more difficult but do you get a sense that it's essential that United have to do something in January maybe get an extra midfielder in or maybe up to boost players in the top they, they want to be whether they will be remains to be seen but I think they have to be as well I think that the whole idealism of perfect age to sign a player is 23 and British and right attitude like you, you can't it's not so much cutting corners but you certainly need to just park that and, and home in for who's the best available option out there can we get them in and, and that's been communicated to us as well like if that player is available to sign don't hesitate sign him who that player could be I, you know it's, it, it remains to be seen it, it is a it's a tricky market because you're not going to get James Madison in January he would be ideal but that the time to go for him is going to be in the summer. That's pretty obvious. Same with Jaden Sancho as well. But I mean, that's that's all hypothetical. Unfortunately for United, coming in the season, I think there's a very very good chance that Leicester will have finished above them. And Madison, I know it's very very tempting to go to United, and it's difficult to say no due to the prestige. You've seen that with Maguire. But another player, if they're in that position and United want them, they might think, well, I'm playing Champions League football here and. I mean, a very good team who've got a high ceiling. I might stick it out here, but Madison is a boyhood United fan and I think all the noises you're hearing suggest that he'd be very much keen to join them next season. The, I mean, the midfield, it's incredible that there wasn't a midfield assigned this summer. I mean, they still haven't replaced Fellaini, who left in January. And if you look at that United side at the moment, it's hard-pressed to say it'd be worse with Marouan Fellaini in that team. At least it adds a bit of solidity to it and a bit of, you know, uh, perhaps a bit of backbone to that midfield. And to have not replaced him or Herrera 
when you've known since January that you're at least one midfielder down, you knew in April you were going to be two down, is strange to say the least. But like Samuel says, finding the right player in January is not easy. It's almost like, January is almost like a window where you go out and you get players that aren't obvious. Like you look back to when they got everyone Vidic and they weren't the most obvious players to get. And it's almost like a window where the scouts have to earn earn the money there and get players that you would never... Yeah, I think that's, that's... that's a great point you make and that I certainly think whenever a sign at the time people thought why are they signing him you've got Mikhail Sylvester at left back you've got mm. Hainsey who was injured at that time but he was he'd just been voted the player of the year and of course you know, they, they got it completely right I think they signed the two of them for about twelve and a half million pounds and within two years they're probably worth fifty million pounds between them maybe more uh, but again have the scouts really earned their coin I don't think so I think Certainly, for a period last year, you've said they they unearthed a decent find in Dallow. Don't think you'd say that anymore because it's just been so injury prone. But that was because Mourinho had contacts at Porto with Daniel James. Ryan Giggs was giving them glowing reports. It was he was kind of like an old school signing going back to the Fergie days when he would have that network and he'd ring someone up. What do you think of this player? Or they'd call him and recommend the player. You take a chance on it. James cost only 15 million I think it was rising to 18 million so it was a bit of a free hit that um, he was that he would have to have been absolutely abysmal to be regarded as a flop because he was so cost efficient but he's been he's been a really good signing so I mean this this bloated scouts network they've got 60 scouts whatever it is they, they are going to have to earn their coin but you, you wouldn't necessarily bet on, bet on them doing so um, I think the one thing that may may work in their favour is that it wouldn't surprise me if they do sell Matic in January at which point you've got the leverage to sign a midfielder who's going to cost a fair fair whack can they, too, can, so can they afford to get rid of Matic because if they get a midfielder only if they get a replacement oh of course yeah but it's, I mean, in January you probably said there's two profile of clubs who are going to be looking to do business there's the well run clubs who know exactly what they want and who see an opportunity to bring a player in and almost give him six months to settle in, as we saw with Vidic and Everett, as we saw with City a couple of years ago when they signed Laporte for his release clause and kind of gave him the second half of that season to, to settle in. And then there's the desperate clubs who are in a mess come January and know they've just got to spend and try and do something. Those are really the only two examples, the only two profile of clubs that spend in January. The clubs at the top end, like you'd be amazed if City or Liverpool did any business in January because they just yeah. don't need to because they know what they want. Same with Leicester, you'd be amazed. It's it's, if a, per- did it's a pertinent point you raise because we were told about two years ago, I think that by someone at, someone high up at United that the January market is driven by the desperation of the I think it was like the desperation of the buyer, uh, not the mm. motivation of the seller. Yeah. Mm. So unfortunately, United are desperate, so they're in that position now. Yeah, and one name I do want to mention because he is available. It's like Ant Ibrahimovic. Yes or no? no. <laughs> Both of you. He could, could do a lot worse, and there's nothing I, to I, lose. I, I, <laughs> I would still say no, but I was I was told something recently that <laughs> if it got to deadline day and United couldn't do anything, they, they were trying to get forward and they couldn't. I'd still say I'd still say no, but <laughs> I think it's probably for a later podcast because I need to get it out there written because someone will pick it up but this won't be out till tomorrow the, yeah the, no no there's there's a story about Ibrahimovic that it, it at Old Trafford at Carrington that does kind of like paint a different picture of how the squad is managed when he's there because of his presence because of his his aura 
Um, so I'll, I'll have to part that there. But I, I, but in answer to your question, I'd still say no. Stay tuned to them again. We'll, uh, we'll, keep <laughs> yeah. up, we'll, we'll keep you up to date on that one. I want to move on to the stuff that's come out in the last week about Richard Arnold's trip to Saudi Arabia, who is one of the directors at United. Samuel, what 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 is the take on that? This, this is not something that's just come about. There's obviously been talk previously about Bin Salman being interested in United previously. So it feels like there's something to it, but obviously in this this specific stuff that's come out isn't true. There's definitely something brewing whether it's a takeover bid or not i think that's still unclear um i mean i I saw these screenshots that this saudi arabian communications guy journalist put on his linkedin and immediately you're skeptical because the takeover of the biggest club in the world tm as they you know as, as united like to brand themselves would not be announced on linkedin um and then I heard from someone else that there was there was definitely something going on um, in terms of communication, what have you. I think there was a video that surfaced of Richard Arnold posing at a dinner, but he knows the Crown Prince's son from the telecommunications partnership United have with them. Um, when United were were asked about it, they you know they were a little bit astonished that you know, they they kind of thought like, well, if this is going to be a takeover, you know, somebody would have told us. Um, you know, we'd have a line to, you know, provide background for the takeover and etc. Um, I think their version of events, I was told on Saturday, was that this chap who put it on his LinkedIn page, this isn't factual, but it was speculated, but it was speculated in a way which made you think it's probably the version of events. But the suggestion was that this chap or someone in Saudi Arabia has recently bought shares in United and by putting it out there and making it go viral on Twitter, you're driving up the share price. So it's it's kind of like, I mean, if, if anyone's in trading places and the final act of that, how you're, you know, trying to dictate the market, it's a decent way of going about it. But again, that's that was just kind of like, a, that, that was a speculative comment that was given to me, but is also quite believable. Uh, I think Arnold was out there last year with... Avram Glazer for a meeting that was around about the, the November international break. I think there was a lot more there was a lot more scrutiny on it that time because of the murder of uh, Khashoggi at the Saudi Arabian embassy in, in, in Turkey. And obviously, for a lot of United fans, quite rightly so, it still is unpalatable the prospect of being taken over by you know, a, a group of Saudi Arabian businessmen or the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who I think CIA. Uh, in their report said is is responsible for the this this journalist being not not just not just killed in an awful way but you know actually being uh, in fact i don't even want to get into the the gruesome details of it but it is just unpalatable i, I did a piece on it last year just saying how it, united fans would be as bad as city fans if they were to revel in this i don't think the match goers would revel in it i think there are a lot of people online i saw saudis in was trending on friday mm. night and you just despair at it mm. because these these people don't really care about the politics they just think well these guys are really rich they'll sign us killian mbappe you know pie in the sky stuff it, it doesn't work that way you've got to have i know obviously united are owned by the glazer family um I've been very critical of the Glazer family. I think everybody has been. Their ownership has not been a good thing for United. They've been, you know, they've been parasites. They've just siphoned off the club. I, I, I don't think. I think the only good word you can have to say about the Glazers that commercially, United are in a different stratosphere to what they were back in two thousand five when 
the takeover was finished. And obviously, if you say, well, being taken over by someone from Saudi Arabia is an inherently inhumane, bad thing. Some will say, well, you say in America has an unblemished record. No, that's not the case at all. I think whatever country someone comes from, there's you know, there's some, there are some tawdry politics, to put it mildly, that they're going to be connected with. So... But it's worth noting as well, like, Glazers aren't obviously as powerful as what Bin Salman is in Saudi Arabia. And that's, yeah. there's a big, there's yeah. a big dif- yeah. oh, difference. Oh, yeah, difference. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, 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 very, you know, different, different leagues, obviously. I mean, they're a, they're a family that are quite aloof and, yeah, I mean, I think Avram Glazer seems to be the only one who actually attends United games anymore and you probably see him at Old Trafford once every other month at most but obviously Saudi Arabia like other countries in the UAE they're trying to not necessarily become westernised but there isn't there's becoming a western aspect to them but it is it is a it's tricky talking about because that that part of the world um you know, the human rights are, are appalling and people are appalled, rightly so, that the World Cup has been held in Qatar. I thought that was a disgraceful decision um, to be staged there. It's even more of a disgrace that's going through given the corruption that led to it going there. Um, it's been well documented, well documented about you know, the Abu Dhabi ownership of Manchester City and the, the, the behaviour of, I think it's the owner's brother. Um, unfortunately, the videos out there of what he was doing it was it was documented in a very lengthy but worthy read by uh, Nick McGeegan about two years ago what he wrote about it it's available to read out there and it, it's one of those things that I wouldn't say it changed my perspective of it because I was aware of it but certain details were revelatory but unfortunately in in English football a precedent has been set where it seems to be fair game that wherever you're from, wherever you are, at least you've got the money, you can take ownership of a club. I mean, Sheffield United's owner now is someone who has no problem dealing with the Bin Laden family. Um, I think a lot of people should have a problem with that, but I think Sheffield United fans, because football is so tribalism, will think, what, what, it doesn't mean anything. What, what's, what's the point focusing on that? Why don't you focus on where we are in the Premier League? Unfortunately, a lot of supporters are just that easily led and, and frankly a little bit thick when it comes to these things yeah because it, it is a situation that would divide fans I mean I you, you touched on fans on social media with the hashtag Saudis in and stuff but I mean I've spoke I spoke to a United fan who's a season ticket holder and obviously won't name the name but they, they mentioned that they would even consider their season ticket if, if something like this was to happen so it's, it's, it's not renewing yeah not renewing yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, I, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of very very principled supporters out there who would be absolutely appalled by it I think from Manchester as a city's perspective the city of yeah, Emmeline Pankhurst and the, the, the Peterloo massacre to have yeah, Saudi Arabian and Abu Dhabi overlords overseeing two of its biggest properties would just be terrible. Either there has there has to be a point where you say, look, enough is enough. There's got to be a point of principle there. But unfortunately, principles are lacking in football. But uh, there's that situation where if the takeover did happen and they wanted to get the fans on the side, maybe throw in a few perks with a season ticket, that sort of thing, a big signing, and fans can very easily get won over by a big signing. Yeah, well... Sadly, the person you spoke to would might give up his season ticket on a point of principle, and many more might. The, the sad reality is that there'd be plenty willing to step in their shoes and take their season tickets, especially if it led to success. But Samuel's right, it would be unpalatable. It would be a complete disaster for the brand of Manchester United to be owned by Saudi Arabia. 
Um, and I just think you know, the, the price of on-field success is not worth paying. It's, it's not worth paying for that. There are other, if the Glazers are in the market to sell in the next few years, there are other very wealthy people who I'm sure would be interested in a takeover rather than going to the first bidder and just ignoring their human rights record and, and everything that is quite clearly wrong with the prospect of them owning the club. Mm. Do you think the Glazers want a plan to sell up in, in the next five, ten years, Samuel? Or do you get the sense that they're in a f- still for the long haul? Because we've heard different things, haven't we? Um, Edward, from special word from Edward. Well, United's official version of events is that they're in it for the long term. That they are more involved with the club than people think. They do give the impression that they're aloof, but I think when I say involved, I mean Woodward speaks to them on a daily basis, and I mean I'd still probably say that what they know about football would struggle to fill a postage stamp, but. They are the owners of one of the biggest and most lucrative football clubs in the world. So they want to be involved because there's an awful lot of money to be made from that. And you know, the, the, there is an element of avarice. You've seen, I think some of the siblings have fallen out over certain things. And they've. I think there were six of them. They've all, obviously, um, most of them got shares. Um, there was the story about Kevin Glazer the other week, possibly selling his shares. So there's an awful lot of money to be made and there's an awful lot of money to be split between six people um, and there's been infighting there Um, so I think if someone offered them a silly amount of money which there are there are people out there who have that money to to throw around then of course they'd consider taking it Um, it it does beg the question given the age of the siblings I mean I I think they all must be in their 50s and above uh, how much more how much money do you need really and it's not a case of hassle at all because they're not based in Manchester. They're remote. They're absentee landlords, effectively. You're not going to get you know, a, a group of United Ultras or the men in black going over to Tampa, knocking on their doors, you know, threatening them, <laughs> offering them outside or anything. It's just that's, that's not been the case at all. And if anything, when there has been when there have been murmurings of discontent, they've actually showed up at Old Trafford to try and front up. They did that during the green and gold protests and they did it last season after some some mutinous chanting was going on during towards the end of Mourinho's uh, time there as well and when they turn up they've I mean they've not had a security escort a proper big time security escort against a huge group of fans probably since the takeover partly because a lot of those supporters have have not stepped foot inside Old Trafford since because they, they couldn't bear to follow the club under that ownership and also just the way football has changed supporters aren't as hostile in that way anymore and there is a lack of um, switch to social media now the protests haven't they yeah yeah exactly <laughs> there, there, there's no what what's going to make a difference is supporters mobilising in person just getting hashtag trending is not going to make a the, the foggiest bit of difference that's I know people will hate to hear that and they'll say well look at the Arab uprising in, in 2011 it was a bit of a different <laughs> different set of circumstances and also they had a presence in person they weren't just on Twitter saying um was it was it more was more I can't remember the name of it but but it was like got people in Libya went on hashtag Gaddafi out or anything like that you know they <laughs> they did um they did literally hunt him down yeah I mean well, interesting to see how all the United takeover stuff pans out and back on topic on, on the pitch I mean we've got two games in the next few days with Partizan and Brighton tight I mean mm. well, it's two different competitions now of the Europa League and the Premier League and 
you're starting to get that sense now that when you look at United, maybe the Europa League is going to probably be the best chance for Champions League qualification. I know it's very early, but 10 points behind after 10, 11 games. I just, you're starting to get the sense now that top four might be difficult to achieve for United unless they can recreate that run that they did mm. midway point through last season. Yeah, especially if Chelsea and Leicester continue to play the way they've been doing it. You can only see at the moment that gap getting bigger rather than shorter. So you would say the Europa League probably is their best route back into the Champions League. They're in a pretty good position in the group. A win on Thursday, I think, seals qualification for them with a couple of games to spare. So they are in a good position. But I think the bigger the bigger fish to fry this week has to be a win in the Premier League just to try and get some semblance of normality to, to this season. They've won three, although they won three away games last week, two of them were in cup competitions and they have still only won three out of 11 Premier League games this season. It, it's, a, it's a woeful record. I mean, bizarrely, two of those were against the teams in third and fourth. It's a terrible record and it's one that they need to start putting right. I think it's a time, he played a strong, fairly strong team in Belgrade. I think it would make yeah. sense to play more of the kids and what fringe players there are available on, on Thursday and focus all your resources on, on getting a win on Sunday and just trying to get that league season back on track because that's a record that is desperately in need of improving. Yeah, Samuel, do you think Solskjaer will go, go towards the kids of Partizan with one eye on Brighton for the weekend? I think I think it might be a little bit similar to how he set up in, in Belgrade and that it was still quite an experienced side even though Garner and... <clears throat> Williams were starting in it. Williams, of course, you think is going to start against Brighton because uh, Young is suspended. So does he sit out the Belgrade game? That that remains to be seen. But if there's the opportunity to qualify as soon as possible so you can give give them experience against Astana and, and, and Altmar in the last game, then that's that's probably preferable. It's just it's, it's remarkable how, even though... Thursday, Sunday is no different in terms of recovery time from Wednesday, Saturday, how it does seem to have, uh, you know, quite a detrimental impact on how a player plays. I think they've lost a couple of, a couple of games this season on the back of Europa League games, I think West Ham and and Newcastle so far. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think the Brighton game is, is is strange because you'd say Brighton has to be prioritised, but they are so far off from the top four and I think that could be that that could well be boxed off this weekend if Leicester beat Arsenal at home and Chelsea beat Palace at home because those those clubs just below them I don't really see any of them getting close to them and the gap is 10 points this is the worst United side in over 30 years I don't see them making up 10 points just to to finish fourth and you think well they're, they're kind of in a similar position to when they were under Mourinho a few years ago where they were dropping too many points in the league and they had to prioritise prioritise the Europa League. Do you think there's an understanding within the club that Champions League next season probably could very likely not happen or is that very much their objective for the season still? And they're going to maybe use the Europa League later on in the season if it carries on the way it is in the league? I think the Europa League could certainly dictate whether Solskjaer... Yeah, sees it out or not um, they've, they've got to be prepared for not being in the Champions League because look at the squad they've assembled um, even I mean, they, they do give the impression that they don't know very much about football but I think that's that's quite apparent that there is a very real chance that not, not only no Champions League football next season I think there's a very good chance yeah. there'll be no European, European. football next season um, 
I mean, they're in the course finals of the League Cup, so you think they've got what? Well, I mean, they should get to the semi finals of that. Well, you um, know what that would mean. That would mean. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know. think about Just it. Toss it off. Don't, don't, we don't want any more of a Thursday night. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be the dilemma. It's like, oh, we've won a cup, but we're back in the Europa League. Does that, is that enough to keep him? I mean, there are so many nuances, but. I think you've got to just go off the, the league form and compared to, to last season when it was pretty bad, it's just been terrible. I don't know what the exact record is now, but I suppose they won after PSG. I think they only won two league games in the last two months of last season. They've only won three league games so far this season. They've taken a pitiful number of points and... I think the other issue for Solskjaer is that after the November internationals, um, you've got Sheffield United away, which is going to be a very, very tough game, given how well they're doing. They're not conceding many goals. And then into December, I think they play they play Tottenham, they play City and they play Everton, um, three, three match weeks running, which is obviously, again, a really tricky period. But that's the weird thing with United. They're such a small time team now that you fancy them to get results against the bigger teams. But if they don't there and you come up to Christmas and it's around about that time that Louis van Gaal was certainly lucky to avoid the sack uh, four years ago. Yeah, and finally with Solskjaer, I mean, this is a question out to both of you. Do you think he's, he's still secure now regardless of the result on the weekend? I mean, you know, the national breaks notoriously well known for maybe getting rid of a manager, yeah. but you get the sense that Solskjaer's secure regardless of this weekend's I, would, I think those, those three away wins in a row have bought him time, yeah. I would say. I think going into that Liverpool game, there was an expectation then he'd get beat. And I felt these four away games could possibly be problematic for him, given United's hmm. record. I mean, drawn with Liverpool and won the first three, I think that's bought him a considerable amount of time rather than judging it game by game. Now, I would say where he's bought himself... I mean, it's hard to say, but you'd think he'd bought himself a couple of months at least, depending on, on results with those three away wins. I think those five games, Liverpool and then the, the four away ones, before the Liverpool game, you probably looked at that period thinking, OK, he, he might not see this out, but as, as Ty said, they drew 1-3, one, one, lost one, even though it was a bad, a bad defeat. You'd probably say they overachieved there, just going off expectations. Because yeah. I, I mean, I, I was certainly I was looking up when was the last time United went ten games without winning a game because I thought that was a very real possibility <laughs> given the run that they had ahead of them. Unless they lose five 0 at home to Brighton or lose in a particularly abysmal way, then he'll. I'd imagine he'll be manager against Sheffield United in the first game back after the internationals. Yeah. Finally, before we do go, can we get to get a prediction for you from the next two games? Part at Stoutman, part as Anne and Brighton tie. One uh, nil to United against Partizan and one nil against Brighton. Two novel It's going to be a thrilling week. <laughs> that sounds very exciting. That Samuel. One nil and two one. One nil two one. We'll we'll keep these in mind. We'll maybe clip them when we'll come back <laughs> next week during the international break. We'll reflect on what's happened. So until then, thank you, Samuel. Thank you, Ty. Thank you. We'll be back again during the international break, which will be next Monday or Tuesday. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and we shall see you next time. <laughs>